Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, web editor of the New Statesman, and each week we bring you an exciting mix of interviews, discussion and analysis. This week, George Eaton and Raphael Baer discuss the week in politics, including Ed Miliband's performance at Labour Conference, as well as what the next week might hold for the Conservatives. Philip Morn and I discuss the end of Breaking Bad and ask why we seem to be unable to make TV like that in this country, and our film critic Ryan Gilby gives his verdict on Blue Jasmine, the new Woody Allen film. here with Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, the editor of our Staggers blog, to talk about the conference that's just been and the conference that's about to be. So we'll kick off with the Labour conference, which you've both just re- returned from. Um, Raph, let's kick off with you. Uh, what did you think of how Ed Miliband's done this week? Uh, he, I think he did quite well in the end, although everyone sort of knew he would. The stakes were very high, and he, he's proven in the past that when he really needs to, when his back is against the wall politically speaking he can come out fighting and give a good speech which he did and he needed at the beginning of the conference there was an enormous anxiety about uh, him personally he gave a, a an interview on the Marshall on, on on the Sunday on BBC Marshall which came across as sort of awkward and and a bit evasive and it just seemed to express everything that was wrong with the Labour Party, mm. sort of sense of malaise and uncertainty and, and uh, it's not a, a massive thing but it certainly caught him culturally to set the tone for a lot of people uh, and then suddenly pretty suddenly at the end he comes out with a whole bunch of policies, real actual things that the Labour government would actually do that are indisputably big chiefly, obviously, this thing that everyone's talking about now, which is a freeze on energy prices. And uh, no longer is it possible to say Labour doesn't have any policies. No longer is it possible to say Ed Miliband is weak um, or afraid of a fight. No longer is it possible to say, credibly, uh, Ed Miliband doesn't know what he'd do if he got into government. So uh, that's a win. Uh, Obviously, you know, one speech isn't going to turn everything around, but they're ahead still in the polls. And the, what, the, the most important thing for me, uh, I think, is that Ed Miliband has demonstrated that he understands what it is about his sort of personal status and brand that is weak and has been failing and has shown he's not going to duck that and he is actually going to actively try to address that. And that, I think, will give a lot of people on the Labour side confidence. That's very interesting. Um, George, you wrote uh, straight after the speech that this energy price 
uh, policy that Raf mentioned uh, is a trap, a political trap for the Tories. Um, why is that? Well, he's quite cleverly appropriated the device of a cap. British politics has become obsessed with capping things, generally the right, capping benefits, capping mm. immigration. And these are sort of wedge issues that challenge the left. And when the left oppose them, the Tories can to say, you're soft on, on scroungers, you're soft on immigrants. What Miliband has done now is has created a policy that is seen by conservatives as too left-wing, too reminiscent of 70s price controls to support, and therefore um, puts the conservatives on the side of the energy companies. And if Labour can find similar mechanisms to apply to the other big cost of living issues, wages, train fares, and so on, then that may start to shift opinion in their favour. So I think the speech was significant in terms of revealing Labour's strategy for the for the election. The, the big question is whether all of this is enough to overcome the two problems, the two biggest problems that Labour has, which is that it's still not trusted to manage the economy and that Ed Miliband is still not seen as a future prime minister and his personal ratings are well below David Cameron and in fact recently have been similar to those of Nick Clegg. Um, I agree with Raf that it was significant that Miliband said, if you want to have the debate about leadership and character, bring it on. You know, Labour will win the election because of me, not in spite of me. I thought there was too little on economic responsibility in his speech, though. Mm. Uh, he mentioned the deficit only once. It seemed to leave all of that to Ed Bulls, which I don't think Labour can afford to do, because if they are going to make ambitious and in some cases expensive promises on childcare and housing, the danger is that even if voters appear to be attracted to them, the Conservatives will persuade them otherwise because they'll say, but Labour would have to spend lots of money to do this, they would have to borrow, and you know, this may look like a nice policy goodie, but if it wrecks the economy and we go back to the, to the bad old days, uh, then you'll be sorry. I think another interesting omission was schools and education. The, 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 as I remember it, the most important thing he said on the subject was about the wraparound childcare, essentially, and the, uh, having children stay at school I mean, for longer. Breakfast clubs and after school clubs, which as a parent of school-aged children strikes me as a completely brilliant policy and I love it, although it wasn't entirely clear how they were going to pay for it. But um, following on from what George said about you know, the, his bit on, on fiscal responsibility was very brief and the danger for Labour is it looks like they are sort of complaining around the margins of George Osborne's recovery, sort of ceding ownership of the big economic strategy to the Tories and offering sort of palliative care around the sides, mm. rather than actually having their own very clear structural argument about a, a, an entirely different economy. And I don't think he quite nailed that one. So next week uh, we have the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. Um, hey! Yay, off we go again. Um, George, do we expect them to go big on this economic responsibility? It's, it's their strong point at the moment. I'm sure they will do that, but you can already see how they are pivoting towards living standards. The, the Lib Dems obviously had the announcement on um, free on free school meals. Mm. Uh, the Conservatives are going to probably say something about the marriage tax allowance, which is of course you know, discriminatory, and I would say I would say probably bad politics. But it is an example of how they are trying to move into a austerity, a, a narrative of post austerity. So now grows back. And actually, the fiscal reality is that in the next autumn statement will be the first time probably since the election that the borrowing forecasts have improved. Mm. And Osborne is going to have more money to play with. 
And the question is, is he going to use that money to try and meet his original deficit targets, which he's now abandoned, or is he going to use it to spray pre-election goodies at the election? Yeah, I think we know the answer to that. We know the answer to that. The interesting thing, I mean, I've been told, and this, in fairness, this might now have changed because of Ed, Ed's big energy gamble, and the Tories might feel they need something quickly to, to close mm. that down, but... Um, I've been told that they are not going to use next week, the Tories are not going to use next week to say we have an answer to the cost of living crisis. They don't want to concede that it is a crisis, first of all. Um, and partially of their making. And there, because it's there, <laughs> the one they would be presiding over, because it's not something people were talking about in 2010, so they can't really call it Labour's cost of living mm. crisis. So first of all, they don't want to do that. Um, and second of all, what they want to do, they have a sort of a grid of cost of living friendly policies, which way they will launch sort of one by one in the build up to the autumn statement, the focus of which will be, we've, we've brought back growth. Now we're going to share it around in a nice kind of way. And that, um, so next week, the, the Tory conference will be about essentially, you know, we've got, we're back on the road. And then that will, you know, establishing in quotes, the record on which the Tories can fight and then they'll start rolling out the cost of living stuff. And this issue of personality and leadership, um, as you say, I mean, Ed did give a good speech. He did project a stronger and perhaps slightly more charismatic image than we've seen for him before, but it is an issue on which he consistently trails David Cameron. Um, is this something that Cameron's going to assert even harder? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, he's still, he still polls much better than mm. his party. Um, and um, part of the problem for the Tories is that is that not enough of them realise that or accept mm. that. And I think they I think they still will I think they'll still frame the next election as a presidential one because Miliband says bring it on, but history suggests that the public, once they've made up their mind about the uh, leader of the opposition, they very rarely change it. Um, I think the the most probably Miliband can hope is to try to slightly improve the situation to limit the damage. I still think it's it's ultimately it's the Labour brand that is that is the strongest point for them. Yeah, the focus groups on Ed are, I understand, really pretty dismal. Uh, the, the Tories do have to be careful though because it, uh, David Cameron's least attractive side is his, you know, what they call the kind of flashman element, the yes. slightly braying, um, over-assertive, overconfident sort of bully image and what's in particularly toxic about that other than the fact that it is just intrinsically unpleasant um is that that is something that ukip voters really hate about him as well mm. and that um in the magazine this week i've written a, a long feature about ukip and what i've what i've found in connection with that is that a lot of the people who are voting ukip are ex-tories and the thing they basically don't like about the tory party yes it's the modernization and some of the policies and gay marriage and the environment and all sorts of things they think uh, that, yeah, the Tories are getting wrong or that David Cameron got wrong but they personally despise David Cameron as a human being with such venom that actually Cameron's standing up and saying let's make this all about me I'm presidential and strong mm -hmm. and I'm the macho man and I'll slap down that you know not need softy Ed Miliband it, it might work with some swing voters but it, it could actually shore up the UKIP vote and as we've seen with the I mean you've done the kind of electoral analysis both of you that um actually the Conservatives have got a much harder job despite being the incumbents that there is this kind of 35% strategy if Labour can just cling on everything will be okay. Yeah I think the uh, the one part of the calculation although they will never admit it part of the calculation behind Ed's speech on on, on Wednesday Tuesday uh, was that actually there are quite a lot of left-wing people who not enough to kind of win 50% 
vote share, but there are enough people who will really like this stuff, ex-Lib Dems in particular, who if you can really lock them down and hold on to them and just sort of form a battle formation with those people, 35 36%, as you say, up to the polls, you've won. And even if it's not a terribly elegant victory, you sort of bundled the ball over the line, you know, they'll take a goal. You're going to have to bang it in from 40 yards out. They still win. Yeah, I think one point that's still underappreciated is that it's it's very rare for parties to return to opposition at the first time of trying because the voters kicked, kicked them out last time. It's, it takes you know quite a shift for them to say just four or five years later, actually, we were wrong and we want to, yeah. to bring you back. And that's something that I think Miliband's strategists find very frustrating, that he's constantly compared to Blair. People say, oh, Blair was uh, you know, this far ahead even even Kinnock in 92. But of course, that was after Labour had been in opposition for a long time, after it had, had time to shake off some of the toxicity associated mm. with defeats. And George made a very good point to me. We were talking about this the other day. He said something that I think was very important. The polling is much better now than it was. So people say, oh, hang on, Michael Foote had a lead of 15 points over Margaret Thatcher mm. in 1982. And yeah, Neil Kinnock was at a, a lead of 5 million over Margaret Thatcher in, <laughs> in 1987 or whatever. Um, and actually... The, you know, I remember that 90, the 1992 election when Kinnock lost, and apart from the, the news being, you know, John Major's the Prime Minister, uh, a lot of people were saying, hang on, there's going to be a lot of soul-searching among opinion poll firms, mm. and the polling was all wrong, and so actually it's very possible that a lot of what we're thinking now, looking at the polls, going, oh, but it'll all swing back to the Tories, the Labour lead is soft, some of this is actually in the price, they have modelled it, and they have worked it out, mm. and actually there's an element now of the opinion polls, and what you see is what you'll get, well, and like Labour the therefore election. might actually win. Like we saw with the American election, yeah, where exactly. um, there was the media were trying to create this narrative of, oh, you know, it's so close, it's so close, when days, even weeks before, you were able to say, no, Obama will win. Yeah, those, that's the polls are saying what will happen, because mm. there actually there is a science to it. Mm. Well, thanks very much, George and Raf. Um, you'll be able to see more, uh, read more from both of them over the next week from the Conservative Party Conference on the New Statesman website. I'm joined by Philip Morn, and we're going to talk about television and what's been happening in television in the last week or so. Uh, it's been quite an important week. Uh, we had the Emmys, in the, the primetime Emmys in the US, in which the only British winner was screenwriter Abby Morgan for the second series of the BBC drama The Hour, which uh, was actually cancelled about six months Yeah, I think there's an axe to grind before. here, isn't there, There Caroline? is very much. You were setting up to ask me a question, but I think I'm really you want me it, to yeah. ask you a question. Well, I'm just going to answer the question anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, this series that she won... I'd say America's sort of highest TV writing award. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I would say. Yeah, the yeah. Emmys, TV. This yeah. is synonymous. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, the BBC cancelled it, despite it obviously being great. Um, and we've also, at the same time as all this sort of television recognition is going on, we're coming to the end of Breaking Bad, which I know you've been writing about an awful lot on the website and so on, um, which is this kind of, what would you call it? feels almost operatic in its, in its scale. This TV drama. Well, it's the latest in, uh, you know, in, in the sort of latest addition to the, the the new form of our time, the new artistic medium of our time, which is the long form TV drama, originally starting on cable and HBO and so on. Now this is produced by AMC, who also made um, Mad Men and, and uh, Breaking Bad at the Emmys won um, Best Drama or Outstanding Drama. Mm. I can't remember exactly what the title is. Um, yeah, there are going to be a lot of people who will know a great deal about Breaking Bad already, so please forgive me. To set up the show, the show is about a 
high school chemistry teacher played by Brian Cranston, who most people will remember, if at all, <laughs> as the father from Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. Um, Brian Cranston, who who is really the centre of this programme, um, starts making crystal meth after he finds out that he has uh, inoperable lung cancer to, in order to leave a sort of nest egg for his family. And he's really captivating. He's a really um, sort of... Oh, I don't know, it's really electric sort of scream presence. Um, there's a lot to the performance. Brian Cranston clearly believes a great deal in Walter White, the name of his character. Um, but he is slowly corrupted by his life of crime, unsurprisingly, mm. some might say. The trajectory of the show um, is uh, is said to be Mr. Chips to Scarface. That's what Vince Gilligan, <laughs> the uh, the showrunner, so-called showrunner, um, creator, director, um, um, kind of pitched to AMC in the mm. first place. And we are really now at Scarface. <laughs> um, the, I'm not going to, you know, the spoiler thing has been a real nightmare for people on Twitter, online and so on. Uh, so I'm not going to say... T- hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Too much about the specifics of what I've gone in the last series. It's the form, I think, that's interesting, though, right? That the, the, this long form yeah. idea, the fact that we've come to the end of this huge cycle. Yeah, and it's a moral journey. I mean, the show is very clever um, in the way that it sort of uh, it, it paints the kind of uh, inner life of Walter White. I mean, for a long, long time, you know, he started committing you know horrible crimes. It's not. It's probably not going to be a great leap for anyone who even hasn't seen the show to guess that you know there are you know violent acts involved, mm-hmm. and we're asking we're constantly asking the question you know is this permissible is he really really still doing it for his family mm-hmm. uh, that's what he constantly says and he's still saying it now after so many hours of of kind of uh, of really electrifying bad behaviour he's still saying you know what I do I do for my family that's what it is and, and like I wrote in my blog last week that really family is synonymous with his ego I mean it's about mm-hmm. his empire it's about creating something he was you know slighted in all sorts of ways in the first episode we find out that in the first series anyway we find out that there was a uh, a really successful startup that he was a part of originally which he was kind of kicked out of um you know they kind of moved on him and you know got, mm. got him out of the business um so he's got a great deal of anxiety over that you know he clearly was a great scientist and a great thinker and he ended up you know not earning enough money even to to pay the bills he had to he was working part-time in a car wash at the beginning which which later down the line they end up buying as a means of laundering money, <laughs> which is a great way of using that. I mean, the last series, um, you know, which is where we are now and which is not actually what they won the Emmy for. It was series oh, really? four that they won the Emmy for. So they'll still be in the running for it with this series mm. next year. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. Um, this series, I actually wrote against, I went against it at one point. I felt as though... They were just trying to kind of the show. The writers were sort of inventing plot at such a rate that it was very hard to um, to kind of really believe it. I mean, I know the story is quite unbelievable, but like there's something about the narrative pacing didn't quite sit for me. However, you know, I felt like that was kind of padding, and now we're at the proper conclusion, and right, it is yeah. it is riveting. 
Yeah. And then to contrast this with um, you, what's happening in UK mm. television drama, yeah. where... I mean, obviously, we don't have the same infrastructure. You know, we don't have the same network arrangement when, you know, we're near like the same kind of country in that sense. Uh, we we have BBC, for instance, in the sense that America doesn't. But people in this country, as is evidenced by their use of Netflix and love film and probably more illegal means to keep up with this kind of show, Breaking Bad and other big American cable shows, mm. people love it. But we're not producing it. We're not we're not making any of this. Instead, we're making, as I referenced at the beginning, we make fantastic dramas like The Hour, where we give a brilliant writer like Abby Morgan six episodes to try and do, to capture as many millions of people as she can. It, and if she can't do that, it gets cancelled. Hmm. Um, we're not giving writers a chance in the same way. We're not. And I can't imagine the amount of hoops that Abby Morgan and her team will have had to jump through even to get that far. This is mm. kind of the problem is there's no... There's, we're too conservative, frankly. Um, we're a little bit too Philistine and we're a little bit too conservative. I mean, it's our writers, directors and actors who are going over to America who are in all yeah. of these shows. So we definitely have the talent. And not least because the theatre scene is so strong in mm. Britain. I think that is a really, um, you know, uh, brilliant kind of uh, playground. And also of the nurturing talent. as well. The hour, this show that she, the second series of the show that she won the writing Emmy for, it is, I mean, it was billed when it first started as the British Mad Men. It's a, a drama set in the 50s and 60s, well, the 60s particularly, in the BBC, in the sort of newsroom. It's got all the beautiful costumes. It's got the kind of um, frisson of the different morals and beginning of progressive attitudes to life and sort of social affairs and all this kind of thing. It's got all of that tension, but in six episodes, trying to encompass sort of race and gender and sexuality, you feel a bit like you're kind of being jerked around all over the place. Mm. Whereas in maybe 18 episodes, which is the kind of length you get in a series of Mad Men, you get a bit more space to explore these things. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the shows that have come from Britain and done really well overseas, things like, say, Downton Abbey, which mm. has just started last week or this week, um, these things, I think America looks slightly down their nose at them while enjoying them they're quite frivolous they're not things that are actually setting America on fire they're just yeah. doing well because they're easily consumed and so on I actually feel similarly about Sherlock and Doctor Who I'm very sorry to all the people who <laughs> love those programs I know there are a great deal of people who do but they are not original I, I really no, don't I think, think the same bit, they're like, reliable I, I, I like Sherlock very much but I like it because I like the Sherlock Holmes story right. I've liked it in lots of other incarnations in different books and TV series and radio series and so on and I think it's a very well written addition to that canon Mm. Um, and similarly with Doctor Who it's a canon it's mm. not a standalone piece of creativity um, it's very enjoyable nonetheless but your point about Downton Abbey is a very interesting one because I'm I'm a kind of I don't know what you call me I, I loved Downton Abbey very very much when it first started and now I have no time for it whatsoever um, it's completely degraded as, a, as right. a concept I like period costume dramas I like witty well written period costume dramas which this was in its sort of first three or four episodes and then the, the sort of pressures of um, I don't know needing to feed the Daily Mail a line every every week or something like that or or the the fact that it did do well in America and thus needing I don't know they felt they needed to exaggerate the class differences because Downton Abbey was at its best as I think a lot of that kind of writing is when it was melodrama of trivia when it was the kind of people fainting down on the floor because someone had suggested that there was a difference between a weekday and a weekend you know that that was the kind of thing that really made brilliant television you know almost satirizing our 
conception of what the Edwardian era was like, well, for the aristocracy anyway. And that's all gone now. Now everything is, everything has to be a big problem and a big drama and has to have a big solution. Um, so like in this episode just gone past, we had a kind of the, the social affairs moment where um, an old friend of the butler was found to be in a workhouse and had to be rescued from it, um, which actually was quite dull. And maybe we, in fact, the, the best moment of the episode was watching the new housekeeper, uh, sorry, the housekeeper and the cook trying to get to grips with a, an electric mixer. Right. For the first time. Incredibly domestic, incredibly trivial, but f both funny and moving in the same at the same time. Because, you know, funny in the sense that she turns it on and it goes everywhere and the mm. bowl splats all over the floor and breaks everywhere. But moving in the sense that the cook finally admits that the reason she's up at midnight trying to use this thing while ev everyone else in this mask fast asleep is because she's worried that if she doesn't, she'll lose her job. Yeah. You know, so there's a kind of affecting element to it as well. And that's. You know, there's not enough of that in it anymore. It's no. all the kind of big stuff. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, and the plot kind of... I mean, I feel like in Britain we make tick box television. Mm. Has it got this moment? Has it got this kind of, like, or tick all the class kind of requirements? Tick all this and that. And it's just risk. I mean, when the BBC has taken risks in the past, and Channel 4, you know, and, and a number of others, like... They've, that, that our biggest shows, our biggest exports, The Office and its comedy. But you know, these mm. things were things that were were had to fight to kind of get through. If you know yeah. what I mean, um, and it just doesn't feel daring to me most of the time. You know, I mean, it just you know, you compare what's on on a weeknight in on on there. I'm watching now. Um, Treme, David Simon, who created The Wire's next uh, next show, mm. uh, which is set in New Orleans, and it's been going quietly. Terrible ratings most of the time. I don't know whether people just don't want to watch a show set in New Orleans. I really don't know what the problem is. It's utterly fantastic. Mm. I'd recommend it. Yeah. Well, on that note, get watching. <laughs>joined by our esteemed film critic Ryan Gilby to talk about Blue Jasmine, the latest film from Woody Allen. So, Ryan, um, you've re uh, reviewed the film in a magazine this week, and I think you maybe gave it a slightly harder ride than a lot of other critics. Is that is that because it's been so successful in America and elsewhere? Um, I think that there's this strange wave of, um, of Woody uh, responses with Woody Allen films. It's a bit like how people used to react to REM albums. Anytime there was a, the slightest kind of upswing or, or you know, sign of um, improvement in quality, people would say, it's a return to form, it's a masterpiece, they're back to their old selves. And it's a little bit like that with Woody Allen. Anytime there's a, a kind of glimmer of the old sort of sparkle of his um, 70s and 80s work, then I think people tend to tend to kind of jump on that and say, this is a masterpiece, you know, he's got it back at last. And there's certainly some really fantastic things in Blue Jasmine. Well, one particularly fantastic thing, which is Kate Blanchett's performance. Um, but I still think that, you know, you can see the same old sort of dramatic devices and some of the old snobbery that he has about sort of working class characters and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's exactly kind of one of the greats, although, as I say, it does have this fantastic performance at the centre of it. And what, where, where does that come from? I know you've, you've, compared, you've um, compared her to um, Blanche Dubois. Of course, she was um, playing, you know, that role with the uh, Sydney Theatre Company in the last couple of years. Has she brought, brought some of that uh, streetcar kind of feel to this role? What is it about her performance? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the plot itself is um, kind of loosely modelled on Streetcar Named Desire. So, um, you know, she's, 
she's kind of fleeing this this um, wreckage of a of a marriage um, where her husband's committed suicide and he's in he's, he was in disgrace and everything and she's kind of on her uppers a bit and um, staying with her sister so this is very much like kind of Blanche and Stella and there's there's a Stanley Kowalski type figure played by um, Bobby Carnavali who um, many people know from Boardwalk Empire so so the setup is is very streetcar although there isn't that sort of sultriness there isn't that sexual tension um, that you get in the play between um, between Blanche and, and um, Stanley. So, um, so yeah, that's just basically kind of the, the bones of the play, really. I wouldn't say it's actually an, an adaptation. Um, and she's much more, I mean, she's, she's got that kind of, um, she's got the, the sort of mania and the frazzled nerves of Blanche Dubois, but um, it's a much more sort of internalised performance. It's not the kind of the flamboyance that you get really with them. Um, with Blanche, she spends she spends a lot of the film, well, portions of the film, sort of talking to herself and drifting through memories, and um, and and one great thing about the film is that it has this kind of dual narrative structure where we're flitting between her old kind of privileged life in Manhattan and um, her new her new life, kind of lodging with her sister in San Francisco in, in an apartment that she finds sort of too cramped for her needs. Yeah, you, you say so. San Francisco is the setting of this film. I think that's a first for a full feature from Alan. Like California has always been a place that characters disappear to, or you know, and, and LA has been satirised and so on. But 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 how does how does he uh, you know what does he make of San Francisco? Yeah, that's an interesting point because Los Angeles was always the butt of jokes mm. um, in in previous um, Alan films, or, or characters had sold out if they'd gone to California. And um, and here it's actually um, oh it's this great source of like vibrancy and 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 colour. Um, you know I'm not I'm not sure exactly. It's hard it's hard to know how Alan himself feels about it because um, you know for instance th this apartment that I mentioned where um, where Jasmine goes to stay with her sister. Um, you know we're supposed to think it's quite sort of you know it's a it's a huge step down for her and it's actually you know not that nice and she's slumming it kind of thing but um but actually it's really it's really great i mean it's a, you know it's a sort of apartment that you'd love to live in it's got this real kind of bohemian chic to it um so i'm i'm not sure that his um you know sometimes you think his compass isn't quite set right the things that he thinks is kind of roughing it um the rest of us would consider luxury but but the locations um look fantastic and you know it's always odd to see the golden gate bridge kind of running across the background in any of the shots. You know, it just doesn't feel very Woody Allen. So um, I think there was a real picture postcard quality to a lot of his, his European films. You know, he did Match Point in London, a couple of other films in London too. Um, you know, he did Mid uh, Midnight in Paris, obviously in Paris, and To Rome with Love. But, and there was, there was a slight sense that it was just, he was really just touring the tourist destinations. But, um, but, but here, you know, San Francisco really gives some extra sort of life to the film, I think. Yeah, and he, t he talked quite candidly about the fact that um, getting sort of tourism money was, was a big part of funding his mm. most recent films. Yeah. So Woody Allen is always quite down on, on, on his own popularity, you know, he kind of gives off the impression that nobody really actually uh, goes to see his films, but like, looking at the kind of uh, the commentary on the last, on the last few films, it's particularly since Midnight in Paris, it would feel as though he's kind of on a roll. Do you think that translates into, you know, bums on seats? Yeah, it's hard to know with, with Alan because, um, I mean, in the past, you know, there, there, were, there were points in his career where he was, you know, pretty much box office poison. And, um, you know, with Match Point, I don't, I don't remember his name being even visible on the poster. I mean, part of that may be because it was a thriller and that the idea of Woody Allen being on, you know, on the poster for a thriller would be off-putting to people. But, um, but, I mean, there does seem to be some sort of, um, you know, a, a new sort of wave of affection for him, I guess, since, since Midnight in Paris did so well. Um, you know, partly maybe because he was working with 
actors like Owen Wilson and Rachel McAdams who had that box office pull, uh, partly because that film is just very sort of, you know, it goes down very easily and, and very simply. It's a very, very sweet, uh, sort of, but superficial film. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure how audiences, I don't really have a sense of, um, you know, if younger audiences, say, you know, audiences in their 20s have any sort of sense of or loyalty to Woody Allen. Um, it's hard to say, and as he, as he himself has said, um, you know, he could, he can never predict which ones are gonna, which ones are gonna hit and which ones are gonna flop. I mean, you know, famously he despises, um, Manhattan, which is one of the films that most people who, who love him really cherish. Mm. Well, we will see, we'll watch with interest and see how it does this weekend, uh, when it opens in the UK. Thanks for talking to us, Ryan. Thanks, Phil. Today's podcast was presented by me, Caroline Crampton, with Raphael Bear, George Eaton, Ryan Gilby and Philip Morn. It was produced by me, edited by Philip Morn, and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. For more information and to subscribe to our podcast feed, visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.